0: to the reality taboo. It's February 9th, 2024. This episode, we're taking another look at the state of the presidential election. We'll start with the latest Real Clear Politics polling. Before we do, Ness, can you explain how RCP is calculated and why you think it's worth paying attention to?
1: RCP's average is a, It's a simple average. It's calculated by taking an amalgamation of polls, And it's worth paying attention to because of the predictive power it's had uh, really throughout all of the 21st century. The polling, as we looked at in previous episodes, was strikingly accurate um, in 2016 and 2020. And so if it is again in 2024, it's definitely worth paying attention to because as we'll go through here in a little bit, at the same point in time in 2016... Hillary Clinton was winning the national average in polling by four points, Um, and at the same time in 2020, Biden was winning by five points. Currently, Trump is winning by two nationally. So in 2016, Hillary Clinton's winning by four. She ends up losing the election. Donald Trump wins. Now, at six points better nationally than where we were when Trump won in 2016, we are in 2024. 2024. If we look at the electoral map, just based on polling averages by state, currently Trump will get 293. It takes 270 to win, he'll get 293, and Biden will get 245. From 2020 to 2024, if the current polling holds, Trump will pick up Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Nevada Biden will gain nothing. He'll just lose all of those states, and Trump will gain all of them. And then another one, Pennsylvania, which is obviously a big one at 19 electoral votes, has Biden, the current state of polling, has Biden up by 0.3%. So it's effectively a toss-up. And so it looks like if a free and fair election is allowed to occur in the United States in 2024, as things currently stand, Donald Trump is going to be Elected again, re-elected. I trust the polling. It's it's a bit of a quandary for me because I put a lot of stock in the polling, and I've pushed back against the sloppy assertion that that polling is untrustworthy because it's not exactly precise. It, given the different mediums of communication and how disconnected people are, the fact that a random phone sampling of a few hundred people can with quite a bit of accuracy reliably predict within a couple percentage points how tens of millions of people are going to vote i think it's it's pretty impressive so i'm impressed by the polling i'm a polling respecter but at the same time i cannot imagine that the existing power structure could suffer the humiliation that would be a Trump second presidential term. The establishment has been so hysterical and histrionic in the warnings of what that would mean for the country that to uh, to allow it to happen is almost inconceivable to me. But one of those two things has to give. And so that provides a lot of fodder for <clears throat> interesting potential discussion as to what exactly we'll give and how it will play out. So we think that the polling is reliable. There's no reason
0: not to believe what it says. And so the two big unknowns or wild cards right now, I'll give one for each candidate. I'll start with Trump, all his legal issues. Uh, it's hard to keep track of them all. So I, while we're on that topic, I'll give a brief update on on what's happening on that front the Supreme Court, as we speak, is hearing the case regarding Trump being on the ballot in Colorado. And I listened to some of the oral arguments and it seems like the most of the justices, if not all of them, are skeptical of Colorado's decision to kick Trump off the ballot. So it's looking like that's going to be overturned and that Trump is going to be on the ballot in all fifty states. Now who knows what we'll see. Sometimes they're just asking devil's advocate questions. So but I feel very strong. I don't know if it'll be a nine to zero, eight to one, six to two, six to three, but Trump's going to be on the ballot. Uh, for and then his immunity claim was rejected. That's a procedural uh, issue. He was trying to claim that he can't be tried criminally for any of his actions while he was president. That's in regard to the Jack Smith insurrection um, criminal case in DC. So that one's going to continue. It looks like the trial is going to occur or at least start in 2024. So there could be a unprecedented situation of a president, the leading uh, presidential candidate running for president while being a defendant in a criminal trial. So we'll see. Um, And then on Biden, the obvious is his senility. Um, How bad is it going to get? Uh, We were just talking, if you just look at 2020 Biden compared to now, it's a huge uh, decrease. And then let alone 2012 when he was super sharp. So if...
1: On on a Biden scale, yeah.
0: On Biden scale, yeah. Um, So who knows what it's going to look like in another six months or nine months. I mean, I don't think there's any reason to believe he's going to get better. So it's just a matter of how much worse is he going to get. Um, So those are the two uh, things I think are very hard to predict uh, that could throw a wrinkle into things.
1: Yeah, this is coming on the uh, in, in
0: the wake of the HER report coming out. And the HER report is the special counsel report that was just issued on February 8th regarding Biden's handling of classified documents.
1: Yeah, the report found that he uh, allegedly couldn't remember when his son died within several years, couldn't remember even the most basic details in Afghanistan, got some generals confused that he thought were allies or were actually opponents or vice versa. And then last
0: night he gave a press conference where he... Uh, got the presidents of Mexico and Egypt confused. So uh, the, at the press conference when he was going out there to prove how sharp he is he <laughs> gets two uh, countries presidents
1: mixed up. And naturally this has led to some speculation that the the re- replacement is going to, to occur, the one that's been much talked about um, but has seemed diminishingly likely as times progress simply because of basic political calculations um, a, a, whoever would potentially step in to replace Biden, and I maintain that it, it can possibly, for political and cultural reasons, overstep Kamala Harris and leave her in the dust and plug somebody else in. But if they did plug someone else in, the name recognition factor alone is going to be a big problem if, if the Democratic Party waits much longer to sub somebody else in for Biden. Uh, but the her report coming out uh, and then the Jack Smith case and the fact that it could be going on during the course of the general election could suck a lot of the oxygen, could cause Trump to suck a lot of the uh, political oxygen out of the room, which might benefit Biden in the sense that he'll be able to do, to to a lesser extent, what he did in 2020, which is just hide away while the battle that rages in front of the media and put po- Punditry class is between Trump and the legal system.
0: But I just can't imagine Biden being president in five years from now. That's how he would he would leave office in January 2029. Uh so
1: well, it it's not necessary that if he was reelected that he would have to serve out the duration of his term. And in fact, if the plan is to get Kamala Harris in, that is an easy way to do it. Because if Biden doesn't run in 2024,
0: the obvious second choice would be Kamala Harris. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, all the polling indicates that she would lose pretty resoundingly to Trump.
1: Yeah, I, there may be a case here or there that's an exception to this. Although I, I think without being hyperbolic, I don't think there is a single exception that I've seen. I watched the polling pretty closely where there has been a single instance of Harris doing better than Biden in hypothetical matchups with the Republican presidential contenders. So we're talking about how Biden is underperforming Democrats in 2016 and 2020 and himself in 2020 drastically. Well, Kamala Harris does even worse in 2024 than Biden does in 2024. So politically... Uh, again I'm presuming a fair and free election it's it's hard to see how she wins but it's even harder to see how she is replaced without causing all kinds of issues inside the uh, the demographic coalition of the democratic party so Like I said,
0: the obvious alternative to Biden would be Kamala Harris. She's very unpopular. All the polling indicates that if they ran her, she would lose. So then the next question, okay, if it's not Biden, we can't run Kamala because she's going to lose. Who's next? The name I've heard floated around is Gavin Newsom. And as Ness was pointing out, you and I know who he is, but I don't think most Americans would know him and maybe unless you're from California, but... The optics of that of pushing aside the first black female vice president and putting in a white guy in her place—I, I, I just—I don't know. I can't imagine that happening. That would be the worst thing optically for the Democrats.
1: Yeah, it's it's worth noting too because we're talking about polling. How when polling's done of Michelle Obama, she mops the floor with everyone. She <laughs> there's uh, there's almost no question um, that if she were to run, she would get the nomination, no problem. And they could, they could easily just keep Kamala Harris as the vice president and have Michelle Obama run as president and win the Democratic nomination without breaking a sweat. And according to the polling, general election as well. I've seen polls where there's double-digit leads for Michelle Obama over Donald Trump. Now, it is worth noting that she is a very curated figure and that would break down to some extent necessarily even given the favorable corporate media treatment and the ability for her to only appear in front of uh, friendly crowds and friendly interviewing sources. Still, uh, for anyone who's read her Stanford senior thesis, this is not an intelligent woman. She struggles with basic issues of punctuation and spelling and syntax and there's no independent thinking at all. It's just like garbled cliches. It's available online easily found by just typing in Michelle Robinson senior thesis and it's clear that this is not a particularly intelligent woman. Not that intelligence is a prerequisite to being an effective politician but she also lacks charisma. She's not a very good speaker. Uh, She has some of the same issues as Kamala Harris does, um, but she's less aesthetically appealing, and she also has a tendency to come off as as shrill and negative. And so it's possible that her sky-high approval ratings and uh, presumed support based on hypothetical polling would come down to earth somewhat when, when the rubber meets the road, so to speak. But still, even with that potential premium removed, her advantage is is so much higher than all of the other potential contenders that that would be an option, or at least it would appear to be so, although indications are that she apparently doesn't have any interest in running.
0: So Ness, you said uh, polling indicates that Trump uh, will likely win, but at the same time, the power structure, the powers that be, the establishment, whatever you want to call it, will not allow Trump to take office. So how do you explain that discrepancy? And why is Trump so anathema to so many powerful people to
1: the extent that they will manipulate things to make sure
0: he doesn't take office?
1: I think the simplest answer is because he's unscripted and that is deemed unacceptable to him. Just think about Vivek Ramaswamy. Why was he vilified so much in the um also ran sort of second place runner up Republican primary contest that already already seemed so far in the distance, the historical distances to not even matter, but why was Vivek attacked so relentlessly, whereas other people like Chris Christie, um of course Nikki Haley, and even to a lesser extent Ron DeSantis were were treated Better and it's because Vivek was unscripted and unpredictable, and I think that is the reason that somebody like Donald Trump is just persona non grata in the in terms of the power structure. And just simply cannot be allowed anywhere close to power, even if after four years he's demonstrated that he will, when he holds the ring, he just won't use it for anything other than the attention that it provides him. Still, the chance that he might. Do a thing or two or say a thing or two that is outside of the Overton window is something that just is not permissible. I think the more interesting question, though, if we're talking about how the polling seems to be accurate, has been historically, but at the same time, we are incredulous that he will be allowed to become president again. If one of those two things has to give, what if it is the Resistance to allowing him to become president that has to give and the polling's correct and he is allowed to become president in 2024. How, how do we explain that? I think the best argument that we can come up with, that I can come up with, is that potentially a situation where Trump is allowed to win, the GOP loses the House, um, which it's certainly not a sure thing that the Republican Party is going to maintain the House, and it's very electorally conceivable that Trump wins the presidency, uh, but the GOP still loses the House. It has no shot of taking the Senate back in 2024. Trump's hemmed in completely, even more so than he was in 2016. And as we plow forward in the crisis of the third decade with interest rates causing the national debt service costs of the national debt to be five times higher than they were just a couple years ago. New debt now at the six-month and one-year mark is being issued at over 5%, so the Treasury is paying five cents on the dollar annually for interest uh, when similar bills a couple years ago, similar notes a couple years ago, the interest rates being paid on that debt was was 1% or less. And so you've got a a huge increase in the national debt, the national deficit, the pressure that this puts on the U.S. dollar as the international reserve currency, combined with the military struggles that the United States is experiencing all over the place, whether it be the withdrawal from Afghanistan or the loss of the proxy war in Ukraine, the inability to open up Shipping in the Middle East
0: and the Red Sea.
1: Yeah, the Red Sea with the with the Houthi pirates <laughs> effectively shutting down, or uh, not shutting down, but threatening to to significantly hamper global shipping. And then uh, the Prime Minister of Iraq
0: is asking that the United States get its troops out of his country.
1: Yeah. So the the so called petrodollar the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency, and then then the BRIC nations talking about other baskets, potential baskets of currencies or commodity-backed currencies. There's a lot of pressure on the dollar, on the Western-led international financial system. And so if that is Perceived by the powers that be, by the Davos types, as potentially breaking down sometime between 2024 and 2028 in a significant way, in a way that might make 2007, 2008 look like just a a tremor of the big earthquake that is to come. It could make sense to have somebody like it's to have Trump be the fall guy for that, and so allow the whole thing to implode, and then pick up the pieces from there, the power structure, pick up the pieces and effectively with, with the stenographers and the corporate media amplifying everything that they say to make Trump be the fall guy for that, the MAGA movement, the, the, the culprit behind all of that, the scapegoat for everything that, that goes wrong in the spectacular collapse that we may be looking at over the next few years. That's the strongest argument I can come up with as to why he might be allowed to be uh, effectively a lame duck president as soon as he gets elected. But I, I, it's, it's difficult to square that with how hysterical and indefatigable the opposition to everything Trump tried to do from 2016 to 2020 was. Maybe they've learned from it. Maybe it was a miscalculation and, and they believe that it was a miscalculation, but I still think that the optics of being in control and not having somebody like Trump in a position of putative power is just so great that I, I think we're giving them too much credit if we assume that that is what the sort of the 3D chess plan is, is to, to allow him to win, create the perception that He is being hindered from winning, but despite their best efforts, they tried to keep him out of power. He gets power anyway. The thing collapses. Hey, we told you so. We warned you of how bad this was going to be if he was allowed to be president, but you allowed him to be. Now, if you turn the power back over to a we in the expert class, we can fix everything. We'll make it all right.
0: So the polls at least say that Trump is going to win in 2024, despite him losing in 2020. So the question is, Who are the people that voted for Biden in 2020 and who are going to vote for Trump in 2024? The group that comes to my mind first that might um, either – who voted for Biden in 2020 who might not vote for him in 2024 are Arab Americans. Will they look at Genocide Joe and think – I just can't vote for him. It would be unconscionable for me to vote for him, knowing what's happening to my Muslim brothers and sisters in Gaza. So let's look at the the data on that, nest
1: At first blush, that's plausible. But I think if you dig into the numbers a little deeper, it's, it, it, it's not going to pan out that way. So the most populous state in the U.S. in terms of Arab population as a percentage of the total population is Michigan where Arabs make up just over 2% of the Michigan population. That's the total population. They do skew younger so the percentage of adults is going to be less than 2% and then the percentage of those who are going to participate electorally is going to be even lower than that. Uh, Michigan currently is showing Trump winning by over five points. So there may that that 5 point edge that Trump currently enjoys according to the RCP polling average might be in some small part attributable to Arab disillusionment with Biden but I don't think it's going to be enough to swing the state one way or the other and that's the state that has the largest population there are only a couple other states that even get over 1% Arab in the United States, uh, New Jersey, and Massachusetts. And those are, of course, foregone conclusions that they're going to vote for Biden. So uh, there, there just aren't any of the swing states other than Michigan that have a significant Arab-American population. And in that case, maybe if the polling ends up tightening more and we get down to a result that's less than 1% one way or the other, you might be able to, to see uh, where that could be fingered as the primary reason or one of the primary reasons for Biden losing a, a state. But I think at the national level, it's hard to to make it hold if it'll even matter to single state at all. But if we look at some other broader demographic categories, in 2020, Trump won whites by 17 points, according to the exit polls. Currently in 2024, this is a, according to a Ugov economist, poll released this week, uh, the first week of February in 2024, Trump is winning whites only by 13 points. So in 2020, he won whites by 17. Now, at a time when he's doing seven points better nationally, he's actually doing four points worse among whites. He's making that relative reduction in the advantage of whites up and then some, with the big increases he has made in terms of garnering non white support. So in twenty twenty Trump lost blacks by seventy five points. In twenty twenty four, according to current polling, he's only losing by fifty points. So that's an improvement of twenty five points, which is a pretty staggering amount. And those states that we were talking about, was Michigan in particular, but also Wisconsin And Pennsylvania and some of these other swing states have significant black populations. So if Biden's edge among blacks drops by 25 points, that that could definitely cause some of those contested states to swing red in 2024 that went blue in 2020. Uh, Among Hispanics in 2020, Trump lost by 33 points. According to current polling in 2024, he's only losing by 18 points. So his disadvantage among blacks and Hispanics has shrunk pretty drastically from 2020, while his premium among whites has actually shrunk more modestly over that same period of time. Uh, also among men, Trump won in 2020 by eight points. He is currently winning by 10 points in 2024, but among women, he lost by 15 points in 2020 and is only losing by seven points now. Uh, so it's e- easy enough to come up with, maybe it's it's like pocketbook issues for women, uh, people who were spending a couple hundred bucks, $200 for their weekly grocery bill at At the Walmart supercenter during Trump's presidency, are now spending four hundred, five hundred dollars for their weekly grocery bills during the uh, Biden administration, and so people who the normie types who are relatively apolitical are going to experience that at a visceral level, and that could could be the explanation for why the gap in female support or the advantage that Biden had in female support has been cut in half uh, in 2024 relative to 2020. And so the putatively white nationalist, white supremacist Republican candidate Donald Trump has less support among whites than standard issue Republicans tend to enjoy, but he's wildly more popular among non-whites than most Republicans are. And that is after he has spent four years in office and has been a known political quantity for the better part of a decade. I have noticed this time
0: around the criticism of Trump among the left is less to do with he's a racist and more he's a fascist authoritarian. Now, they've always said those things, but really there hasn't been much about Trump being racist. It's more he's going to be a dictator. So the interesting question to me is, again, who voted for Biden in 2020 and who's voting for Trump in 2024? I don't know the answer to that. Um, One thing, there were a lot of people in 2020 who were so sick of the drama every day something crazy with trump going on and they just wanted things to calm down and so they voted for biden they probably a lot of them didn't really like biden very much but they basically felt like we have to get trump out of there now flash fast forward four years later things aren't that great and maybe they're reconsidering trump uh looking back with rose-tinted glasses a little bit saying well 2017, at least until COVID, things were pretty good. The economy was good. Um, Biden's senile. Maybe I'll give Trump another shot.
1: Yeah, I think if I had to come up with uh, an avatar for the 2020 Biden to 2024 Trump voter, it would probably be working class non-white for the pocketbook reasons that we alluded to earlier. And
0: this might be wishful thinking on my part, but I have to think that the chaos at the border has something to do with Trump's uh, appeal. So Trump's signature issue in 2016 was the border. That's what he launched his whole campaign on. So in a way, you see the chaos at the border, you think maybe Trump's vindicated and he's certainly going to do a better job on the border than Biden. So the economy combined with the chaos at the border might go some way to explaining Trump's uh, Trump's appeal.
1: Yeah, it is interesting to see with these big city mayors talking about how their cities will cease. I think Eric Adams in particular said that New York City will cease to be New York City. This will if,
0: destroy New York yeah, City.
1: Yeah, that the, the city will be destroyed. It's... it's it, it, It's not a stretch to say that just replacing the geographical placeholders and the rhetoric of blue city mayors in 2024 is almost indistinguishable from that of President Trump and candidate Trump in 2015, 2016 through his first term. And Bill Clinton in the 1990s. And that's not especially surprising in light of the fact that Donald Trump is effectively a like 1980s or 1990s Democrat. That's what he is, ported into 2024. Not ported, he's never really changed. I mean, nothing about him has changed. His demeanor hasn't changed. The way he speaks hasn't changed. The way he dresses hasn't changed. And his political instincts haven't changed. So in the 1980s or the 1990s, during the Clinton administration, he would be a standard issue, mainstream Democratic politician in the 1990s. can you know, remember this I was there it not at all were republicans associated with immigration restrictionism or border enforcement or anything it was much more the chamber of commerce open borders good for business was were the talking points of republicans not just the polls themselves but that was generally accepted among the electorate. And that really stayed true through the Bush years as well. It wasn't until 2012 and Mitt Romney's campaign that you got the first rhetorical sops towards stopping at least illegal immigration while still maintaining the glories of legal immigration. That process of Republicans becoming associated with immigration and restrictionism and border enforcement. It really happened in earnest until Trump, the 1980s Democrat, made it a rhetorical leading talking point for Republicans. And I'll never forget that moment in 2016 when Bernie
0: Sanders was asked about open borders and his reply was, open borders is a Koch brothers conspiracy. So I guess he hadn't gotten the memo.
1: Yeah, and until Bernie Sanders had his kneecaps broken in 2016, he was like so somewhat similar to Trump, uh, more of a standard issue social democrat, ported from the 1980s through to the 2010s, and he, his position was not unfamiliar among socialist-leaning Democratic voters up until the really until the Great Awakening that began around 2012, when the socialists who maintained previously a need for immigration uh, enforcement for the protection of the working class in the United States gave up that position in favor of the need to decolonialize and to dismantle the system of white supremacy and all these other buzzwords and woke terms that we've become familiar with. It's, it is worth noting that just a decade ago, or a generation ago, that really was not the case. The At least rhetorically, the political grounds have shifted considerably in a generation's time.
0: So it's a constant black pill for me whenever I have these discussions, and it's very interesting. But when I see what's happening at the border, I can't help but feel that it's all useless, that none of this will matter, um, that maybe Trump will win in 2024. But soon enough, things will just be
1: unsalvageable. I think you need to get rid of your imperial mindset and stop thinking of your future as that of or shared with the future of 330 million plus uh, people who are increasingly not from the same cultural or linguistic or ethnic or religious or economic or any other Background as you, and, and are effectively not your countrymen or women in any meaningful sense, and so I think political dissolution, as the demographic transition continues, I think political dissolution will become not just more and more attractive, but viewed as more and more a, a rearguard action. The o- a necessity, the only way to maintain any semblance of a functioning civilization will be to break it up into smaller units.
0: I'm not quite ready to give up. Uh, Trump is claiming, at least, that he's going to initiate the largest deportation force in the history of the country. Now, I understand maybe there's no chance he'll actually get that, but he's at least saying the right thing. So I'm still holding out a little bit of hope.
1: Yeah, well, in 2016, he was talking about building a big, beautiful wall, and there were a couple pieces of border fence uh, that got put up and then either got dismantled or got stored away, bit off, uh, sold during the Biden administration. Trump had four years to to get that done and really made virtually no progress on it. Maybe, maybe he'll, he'll mend his ways in the future, but I am uh, not optimistic.
0: Unfortunately, I think you might, I think you're right, Ness. Um so one last thing I wanted to mention before we wrap up. The optics of removing Kamala Harris, the first female black vice president and potentially putting in a white guy like Gavin Newsom. The optics on the on this face seem terrible, so terrible that it wouldn't happen. To the extent that I think Ness was was claiming there, his his view is that if it's not Biden, it's got to be Kamala. Now I was on board with that uh, until December when Claudine Gay was fired or was removed as president of Harvard, and you know she was the first black. Uh, female president of Harvard, and she was only in office for less than a year, and they kicked her out. So that makes me think maybe maybe it would be possible for them to to kick Kamala off as well.
1: Yeah, but the big difference between the two is Claudine Gay made the big mistake of displeasing the Jewish power structure by failing to unequivocally state her opposition to rhetoric calling for the genocide of Jews. Kamala Harris, in some ways, the fact that she never seems to say anything with any substance or even any coherence uh, could, could be an, an indication that she's more clever than we give her credit for because by failing to ever say anything with any substance at all, she also inoculates herself against the kind of gaffes that people like Joe Biden are so susceptible to. And so Kamala Harris is not going to put her foot in her mouth and displease the power structure by saying something so uncouth as what Claudine Gay said. And Kamala Harris is, is married to a Jew, the first first man is or the second man, second man, pardon general. me. <laughs> the, 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 the the wait, it's the second gentleman, right? Oh He's yeah, second the, gentleman. Yeah, the, the second gentleman is is Jewish. Um, and Kamala Harris has has never wavered in her support for Israel. And so I think it's, it's a bit of an apples to oranges comparison there.
0: All right, let's wrap it up there. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please remember, like, share, subscribe. Thanks for listening to The Reality Taboo.